Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 87 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, August 21st. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We're here. We're live. We're here. This is actually recorded this week, so as of Tuesday morning, the 21st, this is actually on time, unlike our next two episodes. Our next Steve. two episodes, one of which we've already recorded and one of which we're going to record soon. We, we've got a couple of deep dives coming up. Not because there's not stuff to talk about, but because I'm not going to be here. You know, if you like the deep dive format, uh, episodes 88 and 89 are for you. They are for you. Just if you quick, don't quick, like it. Quick, quick preview. Episode 88, which we're going to drop, uh, I think, early next week, Bobby, is going to be a deep dive into Anwar al-Awlaki and the sort of law and background of the, I think, very controversial drone strike against a U.S. citizen. And then episode 89, with a special nod toward brand new first-year law students, some of whom are starting at UT in the next couple days. We're going to do a deep dive on an oldie but a goodie, the steel seizure case. Woohoo, Youngstown. Shooting tube versus Sawyer. Exactly. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. But happily, we do have some stuff to talk about this week. As, as I recall, a, a wise man once said that he was surprised in our last episode um, that we did not have real news coming out of the military commissions. Fear not, Bobby Chesney. <laughs> the commissions heard you. They said, you know, he's right. This whole tin layer dip thing has got in the way of just really core issues and boy, did we get one, Steve. Judge Pohl has issued an opinion that I don't think a lot of us really saw coming. I don't think anybody saw coming. Uh, it, it's a big one. We won't spoil it by telling you what happened. But it involves, alert. It, it is a major blow. To the government. Yeah. A right. huge blow in the 9-11 case itself. Right. Which, you know, is only the most important reason why the commissions are still going. Well, an interesting sign of the times, right? Do you think you would ever know this by reading a newspaper? Only if you read the New York Times late Friday night. Late Friday night. So just sort of a you know, end of the week story. I have that, what's that song? It's a sign of the times. Right, anyway, <laughs> I figured earlier. Right, I want you to track that down because yeah. that, that, that lyric's probably used a lot. So I'm not sure which one. Uh, uh, Harry Styles. Someone? No? Wait. Oh, okay. Right, so know? relatively new yeah. stuff. All right. Anyway, I like Harry Styles. We have Good one stuff. more. Uh, we have one more military commission development. Just a really quick note on the expiration of the government's window to appeal Judge Lambert's grant of habeas relief to General Baker. Not a big deal. Just an interesting note. Um, I want to talk briefly about an interesting petition for rehearing on Bonk the government filed yesterday in a Second Circuit case. You have a National Security Division update. I do, and uh, we've got a trio of developments I will note in the National Security Division's world, one of which involves a not often charged but super interesting federal statute, 18 U.S. Code 842P, oh. distribution of information about that will enable someone to make or use explosives. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I spy the First Amendment. Yes, you do. Um, we're going to talk a bit. The, uh, the president finally signed the NDAA um, but included a whole bunch of caveats and a signing statement. So we're going to talk briefly about some of the surprising, I think, uh, uh, claims made in that signing statement. You know, I, I will say this. I don't think we, we've gone 87 episodes. I think this is the first time we've talked about presidential signing statements. Oh, I know, but probably not the last. Probably not. Um, security clearance gate. We just, you know, we got to. Oh, yeah. I'm. There's a lot to talk about there, I think. Yeah, except it's all bad. It's all bad. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I, I This may be one where I'm more optimistic about the uh, litigation prospects than you are. Again? Uh, we're ruining. Our, we're ruining is, our. What is happening? Is 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 day typecast? Which one of us is, is Souter and which one of us is Stevens? Right? Who's moving and who's having the court move around him? Interesting. Um, and then finally, uh, for frivolity today, with the onset of classes, we thought we'd take a couple minutes to offer some sort of you know basic ideas of advice and and general things to think about if you are a brand new law student and you're listening to this podcast. I think our first piece of advice will be. Stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, get, get to work here now, 1L. Yeah, I think if you, you know, for law professor Twitter, it's it's Deriguer to uh, offer 1L tips to everybody right now. And I've, I've really been enjoying reading everyone else's. So now this is our chance to hold court. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, we'll hold court on for, for all the people who stay for the end of the show. All right, so let's start <laughs> with Judge Pohl. So, Bobby, Friday night, you know, I'm out to dinner with Karen. It was actually our our, da- our first date anniversary. Uh, date anniversary. Yep. Nice. So I took her. I took her out to Olamay. Um, oh, very best, good biscuits. Best biscuits in Austin. Best biscuits. Um, and and all of a sudden, my phone blows up because apparently there's a major ruling from the military commissions in the 9/11 case. What happened? So Judge Pohl, and I'm going to have to rely on you to Uh-oh. try to distill the what I consider the utter morass of. It's a morass. This privilege, uh, you know this protective order, then there was this directive. But suffice to say that there's been an ongoing battle between uh, the defense teams 
in the 9 and there are five of them. Right? Five, there are five defendants. different defense teams. So we're talking here about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramsi bin Al-Sheib, and, and Amr al uh, Al-Hasawi, the whole yep. group. So five of them. Um, there's a battle over trying to get access to witnesses, including CIA personnel, who were involved in the interrogation of these guys when they were still at the CIA black sites. Um, why, why do they need to... Uh, get information from these guys. Let's first be clear about that. Um, it's not that these people are witnesses to the underlying uh, alleged events. Of course, those all predated their capture. Um, no, it's all about the effort eventually to try to suppress, and this is where it gets kind of interesting. Yes. Eventually, there obviously was going to be an effort to try to suppress any statements that these guys made to FBI clean team interrogators subsequent to the phase in which they were being interrogated using waterborne etc by uh, CIA personnel. And can I, can I jump in for one second? Yes. So just to be clear, right, the government was never, ever, ever, ever going to try to use anything these guys said in CIA custody. That's right. They knew that that was tainted beyond a fairly well. They knew that that was just never going to happen. It was by, de- it was by definition uh, involuntary in the rules of the military commission. And the statute. Yeah, and the, st- the statute is really what I meant. Um, the, the current iteration of the Military Commissions Act has come a long way from the original uh, pre-statutory version in, two th- in late 2001, 2002. Right. So, the, so the concern was that the government was going to get, what, from the defense lawyer's perspective, was that the government was going to go through the back door, that they were going to have what the defendant said to FBI clean team investigators who were basically brought in after custody was handed over. Um, and, you know, in the ordinary criminal context, this is no, this is, there's a whole body of law called midstream Miranda warnings, um, where the government will talk to you for a little while without Miranda, knowing that what you say can't be admitted. And then they'll Mirandize you midstream, and then they'll just have you walk back over what you said and it, argue that since it was after you were Mirandized, the stuff you said post-midstream is, is admissible. There's a Supreme Court case called Missouri versus Siebert where the court's like, no, that's not cool. Well, it's not that, no, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you have to analyze to see whether there's taint yes. that carries over across the, right. whether, the arrival. Whether the, mid, whether right. the midstream warning uh, somehow... Um, creates voluntariness, yeah. right, or whether it doesn't right. And I would go further and say that actually it works all the time. And this doesn't, yeah. the, the clean team approach, well, the clean team approach is a subset. So the, the baseline model is it, you're, in, you're in the custody of more or less the same people, but then at a certain point they say, all right, now we're changing the game. Now we're Mirandizing you. Will you still voluntarily talk? And that presents its own issues. If you're the government and you're trying to protect more, right, you're trying to make it more likely that you'll be able to get in the subsequent statements, then you don't just have the same people or people from the same organization. Right. You get as different a group as possible. You have them able, you put them in a position where they're able to to swear that they had no no awareness of what went on at the earlier stage. And that's what goes on in all these sort of hybrid interrogation settings where there's a period of military custody with interrogation, and then later they want to bring the FBI in to try to, to, try to uh, engineer a situation where there could be admissible evidence. Okay, but we're not even up to that yet, right? Yeah, we're, exactly, we're, but this so is what's this was, in the future. This, this is what's so weird about this ruling, is that the defendants had not yet moved to suppress the, or, or at least the court had not yet adjudicated the underlying suppression motion to exclude the FBI clean team statements. Right. So this was actually a preliminary battle as the defense in an effort to show that there is taint that carried over across the clean team boundary and therefore makes even the clean team statements that happened post-CIA custody that happened in the in the custody of, of or in the context of FBI interrogation, trying to show that the taint extended there, and therefore over time none of it was voluntary, right? right? Um, so they're battling over access to the witnesses who might be able to more effectively describe what happened to these guys in CIA custody as a way of showing, look, here's exactly how bad it was, and that sets up the subsequent argument that there was taint down the road. Now there's obvious concerns here about protecting, especially the identities of those. Officers who still are an, in covert status, and you, you can imagine—you don't need us to explain—all the sensitivities around protecting the information and identities that might be at issue here, and how that clashes with any defendant's right to access material witness material witnesses uh, for their case to put on their defense. And so you have this kind of classic sort of battle. It's sort of a classified information procedures act type battle. And it's unfolding with a lot of back and forth on exactly what the rules are that are that are constraining the defense. And these rules as and I'm going to rely on you, Steve, to to try to convey a sense of them. These rules are really strict. Yes. All right, so give us a sense. Well, I, I was going to jump in for a second to say, in, in one sense, it's actually much like the fight that ended up happening in the Musawi case 
over mm-hmm. Musawi's effort to gain access, in that case, not to CIA witnesses, but to Guantanamo detainee witnesses. Right, indeed. And the, gov- and the government refused to provide the witnesses, and Judge Brinkema struck the death penalty, and the Fourth Circuit reversed. Right, um, and, and in the end, what they did instead was they gave access to summaries right. of what these guys so would So that's say. basically what the government provided here, right? So the, the fight here is over protective order number four, um, which is one of the – we're fighting over exactly who the defense should be allowed to talk to, who they should be allowed to interview, et cetera. And the government's proposed – so basically, here's what Judge Pohl finds. This is starting on page 34 of his opinion. The commission finds that the extensive discovery provided by the government regarding the RDI program, so there it's like, you know, the stuff the government already told Define you. RDI. I'm sorry, uh, ret- uh, rendition, detention, and interrogation. Right. This is the shorthand for the CIA detention program. Um, the RDI program, the extensive information about the RDI program available in open sources, thank you, Senate Intelligence Committee, um, the government's offered to stipulate to, quote, verifiable facts regarding the accused's involvement and treatment within the CIA's former RDI program, unquote, and, and here's where I think things get really important, Bobby, witness interviews of CIA persons who consent to a defense interview pursuant to protective order number four will not provide the defense with substantially the same ability to investigate, prepare, and litigate motions to suppress the clean team statements. Specifically, protective order number four will not allow the defense to develop the particularity and nuance necessary to present a rich and vivid account of the three to four year period in CIA custody, the defense alleges constituted coercion. So in a nutshell, the government was refusing to provide access to the defense to any CIA witnesses who were not volunteering to testify, who were not voluntarily agreeing to participate. And Judge Pohl concludes that notwithstanding the the Senate Select Committee on uh, Intelligence's a study of the CIA's RDI program report, which is, as I think most of us who follow this area know, is a huge, voluminous, and right. pull-no-punches account right. of and the that's just the, And that's program. just the executive summary to say nothing of the still-classified 6,700-page actual report. Right, but here, of course, I guess they only have access. The only the thing in issue is the executive public summary. executive yeah, summary. Totally. Now, that's a that's a pretty, what's his phrase, uh, particular and nuanced discussion. But yep. the, court, the judge is saying that... Plus the voluntary witness statements, that plus what's in, and here we've got the uh, the book that was actually written by the two psychologists who yep. were brought in to help design Mitchell this program. He says, all that told still isn't good enough. Now, he doesn't explain at all. There's not even a next sentence to explain why isn't that good enough. Or, he, or, or exactly what provision it offends, right? Is it is it because it violates their right to confrontation? Is it because it violates due process? Is it because it violates the underlying rules of the Military Commission, the Military Commission's Act? He just, it's just a, a it's full just an stop. assertion. Right. Yeah, full stop. Um, and then he goes on to say, under the specific facts of this case, in order to provide the defense with substantially the same ability to make a defense as would discovery of or access to the classified information at issue here, the government... This is the big one. The government will not be permitted to introduce any Typo. FBI clean team. He's missing, he's missing the two, right? Uh, yeah, he is. The government <laughs> will not be permitted to introduce any FBI clean team statements from any accused for any purpose. Boom. That, to me, That's is a hammer. So crazy. So this, is, this is, talk about burying the lead. This is yeah. one paragraph in a 36-page opinion. It's on page 35. Um, I think we need to step back and explain to our listeners why this is such a huge development. So it's worth keeping in mind that there are five different defendants and that although I think most of us are familiar with KSM and with a lot of what he has said publicly that is in many ways inculpatory, the same is not true for the other defendants, right? That that it's not the case that there there's the same mountain of self-confessed incriminating statements for the other defendants as there is for KSM. That's a really good point. You're saying that it's the case against KSM doesn't necessarily hinge on this in any way. His his post, not just post-capture, but post-CIA custody, further inculpatory statements. But it might matter a lot in, to varying degrees for maybe not so much Ramzi bin al-Shi, but some of these other guys. Like Al-Baluchi. I mean, right. And so so I think the key, I mean, um, Charlie Savage, I think in his story on Friday, called this a potentially major setback. Um, so I think it is at least with respect to some of the defendants. Um, of course, how big a setback, I think we don't know because we don't fully know the government's right. case in chief. Yeah, could be, could be they've got loads on all of them. Well, I think we're going to find out pretty soon, right? Because under the rules, under the Military Commissions Act, the government has 10 days to appeal this kind of evidentiary ruling um, under 10 U.S.C. section 950 D A 2. Nice. But there's a problem, Bobby. 
who is going to hear that? Yes. The, so so now we come back to something you and I have been talking about, which is the Methodist the Military Commissions. The CMCR is currently, at least in the 9-11 case, in court. It does not have a quorum. It cannot actually hear any appeals right now in the 9-11 case, even though the government has until basically next Monday. Can you hear that, that scraping sound? That's the goalposts moving further and further away into the distance. What do you think? Trial now, 2021? I mean, this is... This 2022? Is, so here's the thing. Come it, on. The, the million-dollar question is, can the government live without this stuff? Right. And so... If it can, no appeal. You know, just move on. Move on. If it can't, then I think the only option the government has... Oh, it is, has to. ...is a petition for rid of mandamus to the D.C. Circuit. And we've talked before about how high the bar is. So unlike, the Military Commissions Act is, 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 I don't know if it's deliberate or just a screw-up, but it's very clear that the government can take an interlocutory appeal to the CMCR. It says nothing at all about appealing from the CMCR in an interlocutory posture to the D.C. Circuit. That's why we've had all these mandamus cases, because mandamus is a means of achieving appellate review when there's no direct avenue. But this isn't an obvious good case for mandamus. Well, here's the problem. The D.C. Circuit's mandamus standard is so high. I mean, it basically is like only if the trial court committed clear, plain, obvious error. And given, you know, how do you look at Judge Pohl's ruling and say it's clear, plain, obvious error? No, right. Especially with the lack of explanation as to exactly why he And the lack of precedent for this kind of problem. So it seems likely to me that they will appeal it's, it's hard to imagine that this is something they can live entirely without as to all five defendants, but that it'll just get lodged there at the inquiry CMCR and just sit there until and then, and it then, becomes quarried. And then how do pretrial proceedings go forward if you're not right. sure whether or not these statements are coming in? So and you, so then we so have you the get chance. one major case that's basically held in abeyance and the other one that's de facto held in abeyance. I, mean that, I think unless the government tries to jump over the CMCR and go straight to the D.C. Circuit, I think that's what we're looking at. And so the milit- you know, this ruling has the potential... We talked. We've talked a lot about the Nashiri rule and how it basically ground that case to a halt. Yeah. Now that's Nashiri. This is the 9/11 trial. The only like I mean, Nashiri and the 9/11 case are the only reason why we still have the military. No, no, this is all so crazy. Now, what's interesting about this course is now, unlike a lot of the issues that gum things up in the military commissions, this one would be an issue of like kind in the regular courts as well. Uh, except, of course, you would be able to go to the circuit and get a ruling because the circuit ain't inquirate. Right. Hey, you like that? I do. Yeah. The circuit is that our episode title? The circuit ain't inquiry. <laughs> Maybe that's a contender. I'll write it down. All right. Um, all this is to say. So, so I, I tweeted this on Friday. I mean, you and I have talked before about exactly what value the military commissions provide that can't be achieved in Article Three courts. And I had I had long thought that this was one of the principal. Maybe not, maybe not public arguments, but the principal sort of internal arguments for the military commissions was a belief that the commissions would be not more susceptible, not more likely to admit statements obtained by torture, but take a sort of longer view um, of exactly what kind of sort of taint should attach should attach to these statements. Um, would be more sympathetic to efforts to sort of sterilize right through a clean team. And here it failed. Yeah, I think uh, you and I both have been of the view that the commissions have long since, in actual practice, according to the rules and the statutes, converged very closely to federal courts and, and this courts pro- martial. And, th- and this may prove it. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is this is giving the lie to claims that, well, you can't put these cases into civilian courts because, you know, all kinds of rights and so forth. I'm putting scare quotes in there. Rights and so forth. They're going to, like, enter into the picture. Well, guess what? As we've been arguing for a long time, the commissions aren't some special deal that so favors the government, which is actually, you know, part of the critique against them. Part of the critique is... (laughs) Part of the critique against the commissions is that somehow the fix is in for the government. Well, clearly not. (laughs) <laughs> um, in some respects, sure, there are things that have been going the government's way, but there's no fix here. So, so, so here's my question. So, why did Paul do it? Right. I mean, yeah. He did, so right. he didn't have to. I mean, th- this is the key, right? The the issue was not properly joined. Um, yeah, he reached to he grab reached out this to decide further. this question, as opposed to wait. It, it it would have squarely arisen at the moment he was deciding a motion to suppress. Yep. The FBI clean team statements. This is just in fighting over the protective order and who the defense lawyer should even be allowed to talk to. Right, so why not directly order that they be given access to the people that he thinks they're? So I mean, my sense is my sense is that the CIA refused, right? That right. That, that that part of what forced Paul's hand was that it, we've already gone past that point. We, we, we passed that point because the CIA won't 
cooperate, you know, on an involuntary basis with the defense teams. Is it best then to understand him here, even though he didn't put it this way, but what he really should have said was as a sanction. Yeah. Because he frames it as if it's a substantive determination that right. therefore there's taint. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think no, that he's sanctioning it's a them sanction. I think that's for right. failing to comply. That's why this strikes me. That's why I, that's why I see a deep parallel to the Musawi case. Because in the yes. Musawi yep. case, right, Brinkema struck the death penalty as a sanction for the government's refusal to provide access if to the... If he had written that, this would make much more sense. I think but that's right. Of course, right. he hardly wrote anything. So. Well, but, but I think, I think that's the only way to view this is he's saying, I am, you know, the defense lawyers are trying to do this. The government is not helping them. Yeah. I am punishing the government. Right for their non-compliance. Yeah, that that does seem to be it. As opposed to shoehorning it into a fight over the scope of the protective order. So let's be watching closely to see if we get that appeal within. So 10 next days. Mo- I think next Monday would be the the or Monday or Tuesday. I I don't I can't count. Um, would be the oh well next Monday. Sometime is, soon. Well, yeah. you'll be you'll be away. I'll so be on vacation. By the time this show is actually covering any further developments, we'll be a couple weeks down the road. We'll have that covered. That's right. I think the question is just whether the, the the big question to me is is if they appeal, do they just file the appeal in the CMCR and sit back, or yeah. do they file the appeal in the CMCR and then use that as a hook to file a petition for mandamus in the DC Circuit, arguing to the DC Circuit that the CMCR lacks jurisdiction because it's currently in court? Oh my God. All right. That, a day in the life of the military. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, and if this grinds the 9-11 trial to, to a halt, then what the hell are the commissions doing? Litigating uh, mandamus petitions, Indeed. I All guess. Right. Um, one more sort of quasi-commission-related development. The, the Speaking of appeals, the time within which the government could have appealed Judge Lamberth's grant of habeas relief to General Baker, the chief defense counsel, um, who had been held in contempt by Judge Spath, um, has now expired. So the government is apparently not going to appeal that to the D.C. Circuit. Um, As we talked about in this podcast, I actually think the government is wise to do that because had they appealed, Baker could have cross-appealed the, to me, more problematic parts of Lambert's analysis, including whether the MCA applies to U.S. citizens, um, right, whether the contempt defense defined by the MCA includes refusing to testify, which is what Baker did, et cetera. So this all now just disappears. Uh, does that take a layer out of our tin layer dip? Um, to a point, um, only in the sense that you know there's now no longer contempt. We're we're still trying to. F- I mean, speaking of the CMCR, another week and no movement in the Shiri. Well, because they're so busy with all their other cases. Oh, totally. Yeah, they're yeah. just bogged down. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Um, that I think is is it for military commission land. But Bobby, you jinxed it. You said you know maybe next week. I know. Well, they did in, not. In this case, I can guarantee you we'll have more to say in, in our uh, next in, live episode. I guess three weeks. Right. right. Three weeks. Oh That's, man. If we're all still here. How dare I go on vacation? Okay, now tell me about this Tanvir case. So this is this is an interesting little weird case. So um, this is a lawsuit by three Muslim men um, against senior federal law enforcement officials and a bunch of lower-level federal law enforcement officers. And the basic claim, Bobby, is that these men were approached by these government officers about serving as informants, that these are men you know, who are sort of... Um, active in the, I think, Brooklyn Muslim community, um, and that as part of the FBI sort of continuing ongoing counterterrorism operations, you know, they're trying to identify especially sort of people who will fit in, um, who can potentially be informants in terrorism-related prosecutions. Um, And the allegations in the complaint um, are that after these plaintiffs refused to do so, the federal agents retaliated against them by placing them on the no-fly list. I, sh- I say the allegations because right. we're just we're at the yep. motion to dismiss stage. Nothing has been proven. And for the non-lawyer listeners, uh, uh, the motion to dismiss stage, you accept as true all the well-pled plausible allegations. Plausible allegations. Right? Um, okay. Um, the district court, uh, the, they, they brought two claims. The first was that um, their First Amendment rights were violated, um, freedom of religion, right? Um, and the second was a specific claim under RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, I think. Um, and the real question that got to the Second Circuit was whether damages are available under RIFRA. Um, so we've talked before about this problem in the context of Bivens and how courts are sort of loath to recognize a judge-made cause of action for damages for constitutional violations. Right. And to clarify that, um, where you don't have Congress already having provided a vehicle for suing for damages and you're just claiming that the Constitution itself is a sort of tort source of tort law, um, there's sharp limits. But Congress routinely does create situations where there are ways to sue for damages. 
And so the question is, is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act one of those? That's right. Um, and now the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does authorize damages, right? The question was whether it authorizes damages against federal, with sufficient specificity, against federal government officers in their individual personal capacity. Um, so there's no real argument. I mean, the, 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 basically the gist is, can we bring this case in an individual capacity um, and not just an official capacity? And the reason why that matters is because if you sue a federal officer in their official capacity, you have to worry about sovereign immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, in their official capacity, you just have to worry about official immunity because they're not the sovereign. And the holding for the Second Circuit panel um, was that indeed it is permissible, um, right, that RIFRA does authorize individual capacity suits against federal officers for damages. Um, and that, that's a stat- that, that was statutory analysis. It wasn't based on any deeper constitutional principles. So, so far, a pretty sort of not that important, exceptional statutory holding. The government's petitioned to take that on bonk. Um, which I find surprising in one sense, which is um, the way this works is for the the government to take a case on bonk, they have to get the permission of the Solicitor General. Um, okay. Right, that that it's, it can't just be the random, you know, civil appellate folks or um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York that does it. Right, it has to be the Solicitor General who says, "Yes, I authorize you to pursue this further." Going on bond to me is a pretty strong client. They're willing to take this to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's that, what I find sort of, I, I mean, in one sense, that's not surprising because the government always has an interest in foreclosing remedies against the government. Right. Sure. Yeah. But here we have a case where the statute, where, where this is not about judge-made constitutional remedies. This is about, like, statutory interpretation. And is it really that implausible to think that when Congress authorized lawsuits against a government and its officers, it was contemplating lawsuits like this one? Do they have, can they draw a distinction between state officials and local officials, which I think was the main focus uh, of RIFRA? Yeah, although RIFRA says government in general, right? I, know, I, mean, I, know. I, I guess you could. But like, could they have it both ways? It's an atextual distinction, right? So you're saying, like, this seems like a lot of... Uh, judicial capital to expend or political capital to expend with the court on an argument that doesn't seem terribly likely to win. And on a nasty, and, and on a case where the, the optics aren't good for the government, right? I mean, the allegations here are pretty shady. Yeah, they're ser- which raises the question, why not um, just, because I think they'd win this on... On, uh, on the merits. The merits, uh-huh. because it's, on the on the facts alleged, I hear this, this account, let's assume it's all true, that these guys were approached in hopes they'd help with terrorism investigations. They said no, and so as retaliation for that, that choice... They were put on the no-fly list. That doesn't, to me, sound like they're being uh, targeted for religious purposes, but being punished for a basically a policy or political choice of their own. Still pretty nasty. I didn't say it wasn't nasty, yeah. if it's true. But I, I, it's, yeah. I have a very hard time seeing how that's in any way a free exercise claim or a RIFRA claim. So I agree, with, I agree with free exercise. The problem with RIFRA is that RIFRA is remarkably broad and capacious and protects all kinds of claims that I don't think the Constitution protects. I just think that the religious element isn't doing any work in yeah. the fact pattern, that if these guys were all guys who happen to just work at a place where there is, right. for whatever reason, a suspicion that someone else there right. might be sourced uh, into crime. Either way, that's not the issue that's going to be go, that's going to go before the en banc second. So now the, now the Second Circuit will vote whether to take this case on banc, potentially rehear it on banc. And I, I take this as a sign from the government that if they're going to, that if they lose, Either the vote or on the merits on Bonk, yeah. they're going to go to the Supreme Court. So, which all of which suggests the SG has thought about this and thinks they have a good shot at that. Which I think you know may also be a reflection of the change in composition of the Supreme Court. Could be. Um, all right, so that's uh, an interesting development. Interesting in, case. I didn't know about that one. Um, yeah, it, it's sort of it, it's lurked under the radar. Um, speaking of cases lurking under the radar. Oh yeah, it's we time for our NSD update. Okay, Justice Department National Security Division has since last we met. A trio of cases I want to mention. And the first one, I think, I'll be interested in what you think about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't dive deep into it, but it's it's a much more compelling fact pattern uh, in sort of a First amendment kind of way than usual roundup instances. So this is the uh, 15-year sentence just handed down on Monday to Marlon Hicks. Marlon Hicks is a 31-year-old guy from Indiana who uh, about two years ago, October 2016, pled guilty to a violation of 18 U.S. Code 842P, unlawful <laughs> distribution of information about explosives. Dare I say, that old chestnut? That old chestnut. Um, so this statute is itself really interesting, and it pops up every now and then, and it always, when it does pop up, always raises this question, will it become, will the new case become a vehicle for a major First Amendment ruling? And it never quite does, in part because these guys often plead guilty. Um, so a little background in 842P. It makes it a federal offense 
to teach or demonstrate or communicate to others how you make or make use of an explosive. And there's, there's some other verbiage in it, but that's the basic idea. But subject to a strict intent requirement, it's only if the government can show you had intent that the knowledge would then be used for a violent crime. Now, Congress had wrestled with whether to create this statute for many years back in the 1990s, and it was very clear that the reason it wasn't making it into law in things like EDPA, in uh, 1996, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act that we all know and love. Um, love is strong. It was uh, held back by First Amendment concerns. So in 1997, there was a Justice Department report on this exact issue. And our, and our mutual friend, Marty Lederman, uh, has written about how he had a role in this. And he's someone who's closely followed 842P. Marty, we hope you're out there. Let us know your thoughts on this. Um, my, my sense of the report is it concluded that there's a little window of constitutional space to criminalize providing information uh, where you can show specific intent. And so the idea was it can't just be that you could infer intent or there was constructive intent. There must be uh, actual conscious purpose to bring about the very specific result. So um, back in 2011, Marty wrote something at Balkanization about a case, uh, at the Begali prosecution, which seemed to present exactly this issue. He was someone who was uh, promoting violent jihad online, and he linked to a bomb-making manual. Uh, and this was seemed like a great test case, especially because it had the extra distance that it wasn't his information. He was just providing the link to it. Uh, but he ultimately pled out, I think, and the case never presented a, a clear ruling on the issue. Um, Anyways, the statute got enacted in 1999. It gets used from time to time. It was used here. Uh, this is a guy who was an online supporter of, uh, he, was, he was promoting the Islamic State online and expressing his support of it. Right after the Pulse uh, massacre, the Pulse nightclub massacre, his rhetoric really escalated. Some of the people he was communicating with online were in turn sharing this with the FBI. They were cooperating witnesses. And ultimately, he sent to the cooperating witnesses uh, two different how-to manuals on explosives and poisons. And all his rhetoric was about wanting to carry out attack inside the United States because it was now too hard to get to the Islamic State itself. Um, he's gotten a 15-year sentence. He could have gotten 20, interestingly. I think it's interesting that he only got 15 rather than the 20. But there's a case that could have been a big First Amendment case and ended up not being. Uh, can, to, I, can I ask yeah. a potentially messy question about 842? Yeah. Um, or 842P. Um, at the risk of causing real trouble. So 842P, um, 2, A and B, yeah. both define the offense by reference to sort of the dissemination of information, knowing that the information will be uh, used um, da, 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 in furtherance of an activity that constitutes a federal crime of violence. Yep. So the Supreme Court just held that the term crime of violence is unconstitutionally vague. Is that going to cause non-First Amendment pro Is that going to cause additional problems for a charging decision under this statute? I'm not... So it could, I thought that in 842, this was a defined term. It was in reference to particular statutes, but I could be wrong. Is is there a general I'm looking, I'm looking, federal I'm looking. crime of violence? Do you guys like it when Steve and I uh, expose just how little planning goes into these shows? So the problem, I mean, the problem is, is that the, the, the general definition of federal crime of violence is 18 U.S.C. Section 16, which is the exact provision right. that DeMaia says is unconstitutional. So anyway, I just not not to not to not to be a, a, a troublemaker, but um, well, let's let's think this through. So okay, because so we've what? also seen some terrorism prosecutions, right, that have been based on crime of violence related either charges or sentencing enhancements, Bobby, in the last couple months, where after Demaya, courts have actually had to either throw out the conviction or throw out the sentence. So if if the reference here. Uh, connects up with Demaya. The idea would be that there's no constitutional foundation. There, there, the statute's unconstitutional in its uh, intent object, the object of what you had to have intent to do. Right, because Could the you get around that by basically. showing that the particular There's a specific offense, crime of violence. Like that, 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 that it was with an intent to commit a specific crime. Right, so this this was, I'm giving you bomb-making instructions yeah, maybe. because... That, that may be right. So but, sort of an as-applied cure? I, quite possibly. I think it would be... I, 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 I haven't been I, following let's the, think the Let's think this through. So the, the <laughs> question would be, would a reasonable person in... Uh, in this guy's position have understood that the explosives information he was conveying would in fact relate to a crime of federal crime of violence. One argument is, well, how could it be? Because we're told in Demaya that, that you know, there's no telling what might count. Um, 
That's true. On the other hand, if you say, well, look, he was he was trying to get someone to use these explosives to kill somebody. Right. Is that really not foreseeable? Like, is no, it that, might be. It might does be, it need to be in the gray area? Um, I haven't seen how these cases have cashed out after Demaya. We we need our friend Leah Littman on the podcast because Leah's like the Demaya guru. All right, well, let's uh, let's ping her. Let's send her a note, get yeah. her input, and we'll we'll weigh back in in a couple of weeks. All this is to say that like, but but it's a good excuse, Bobby, to sort of um um also flag these other interesting developments with these terrorism cases that where courts have either recently ordered resentencing or even retrial because Demaya has undermined these crime of violence based either charges or sentencing enhancements. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, this sort of thing happens. If, for those who don't follow this stuff, you may wonder, like, does that happen a lot? That, that there's a ruling about a general statutory term, it's found to be inadequate in some way, and then it has this spillover effect? And I'd say, yeah, that sort of thing happens a lot. Sure. Um, I, I don't know how often it happens with with direct consequences in terrorism cases. No, that, that's pretty rare. You, but you get this sort of thing with, like, a new twist to how sentencing should yeah, yeah. work. Oh, Johnson. I mean, yeah. Johnson, which yeah. is the sort of precursor to Demaya. I mean, was a huge, was a exactly. huge sort of uh, upset the apple cart. So um, two quick other NSD notes. You've got United States versus Omar Amin. Uh, Omar Amin was arrested in Sacramento on Wednesday last week. Uh, this is an interesting one because it could become a political football of sorts because Amin was an Iraqi citizen who came here as a refugee. And it seems to be a, a, an exceedingly rare case where you actually do have a refugee admitted to the U.S. who turns out was involved in the Islamic State. Now, no one's claiming or saying right now that he was up to any Islamic State-related activity here, but the Iraqi government has charged this guy with being an Islamic State fighter who, while still living in Iraq, had been part of an Islamic State group that entered the town of Rawa in summer 2014, killed a local policeman, uh, did other things. Uh, and so the claim now is, is a claim by Iraq asking for his extradition, and DOJ is supporting that. And, and alleging along the way that, obviously, he lied about his terrorist group affiliations. Um, don't be surprised if the name Omar Amin starts getting thrown around by the administration as, ah, see, refugees, da-da-da-da-da. So watch that space. Uh, third, uh, United States versus uh, Mohammadi Dusdar and uh, U.S. v. Gorbani. This is a two- uh, Iranian-related cases, these guys, one of whom is a dual U.S.-Iranian citizen, the other one lawfully resident in California but also Iranian originally, um, they've been arrested for being Iranian government agents who had failed to register as such, so non-official cover agents for the Iranians. Um, basically, the allegation is that these guys were going around, they were surveilling and passing information back to uh, Iranian intelligence services. Uh, information about Israeli-owned facilities in the United States, about individuals showing up at anti-Iranian rallies, uh, and then most chillingly conducting surveillance, including surveillance of the security measures at the Rosh Shabbat House in Chicago, and that's a, that's sort of a Jewish education and community center. Um, you know, why why the hell would somebody be doing that? Um, it's a very nefarious thing. So they've been arrested, and it's all part of the ongoing uh, sort of semi-Cold War with the Iranians. So there's your three National Security Division notes. Lots going on last week. Always. Well, 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 nothing will be happening in the military commissions for a while. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to need the DOJ to keep us busy. All right, so let's pivot to the president. He's been busy. He's been busy. He's, oh. been, he's been tweeting up a storm. So we can probably go quickly through the NDAA presidential signing statement. Um, there were a lot of, of constitutional claims in the NDAA signing statement. It's, it's a huge statute, you know, and I yeah. think actually it's – so my, I think this is kind of a nothing burger. Um, but let's – I disagree. All right. This will be good. So let's – I, I think it's a partial nothing burger. Interesting. You got like a half order, or is that I, like I, without cheese? I have a, I have a, I have a nothing burger <laughs> with, with cheese. Is it like a nothing veggie burger? That's yeah. – it's not, it's not, wait, what's that, the, oh, there's a word for it, right? The incredible, the, the, there's the impossible burger. The impossible burger. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, you know who in Austin has a really good veggie burger? And I don't say that lightly because no, I'm not mainly I, interested I, I in that. I don't know who because if I want a burger. Yeah, go to Hobdotties and get a real burger. Or Clark's. Clark's Oyster Bar. Yeah, yeah. Great burger. Yeah. Uh, there's apparently a Clark's, what, in Aspen now? Have really? You heard that? Isn't that crazy? Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, road trip. Okay, we it's asked. We asked for a free today. trip to Australia last time. No we one did, took us up on yeah. that. Now we're asking for the free trip to Aspen. There you go. Uh, we have have microphones. We'll travel to the to the right places. Okay, um, a presidential sign statement. I think a little context is actually interesting and useful. Um, when a president signs a bill into law, or for that matter, decides to veto, the president may decide to say something about why, may decide to express something about the policy justifications, may say something about the politics 
may say something about the legalities. And this is, in a certain perspective, this isn't something new. Uh, you know, one of the things we often teach in con law, um, Madison's veto message on the on the Bank of the United States Jackson. bill. No, no, I'm talking about Madison. Oh. Madison had an ex- explainer on his initial uh, oh. veto on this. I don't actually teach Madison. Oh, okay, I, I yeah. teach Jackson's veto. Message. Well, we all do. We all do. We all do Jackson's look as well. Look at you, fancy pants. Look, I, I can't believe I actually finally had something that you don't actually already, you know, have right there at your. I mean, I mean, I get to my syllabus. So the point is, on veto messages, it's of course expected that there might be an explanation, and sometimes in presidential history, presidents give constitutional justifications for vetoing a bill. Nothing surprising there. Fast forward many, many years, and you get to the Reagan administration, which was in many ways uh, a great pioneer for thinking about how to shape legal policy. One of the things uh, that the Reagan administration did was to begin to think much more purposefully about when signing a bill or when vetoing a bill, expressing your legal positions there as a sort of presidential equivalent to legislative history, right? So if there's a uh, congressional committee report explaining what Congress thought it was accomplishing in this statute, why can't the president, who's going to sign the bill into law and therefore be a critical part of the lawmaking process himself, why can't he say something about what he thinks is going on there? And if you're going to do that, while you're saying that, you might express some constitutional-based problems with certain things in the bill. And, and this gets us into the realm of presidential signing statements as we usually hear about it in the past 20-something years. Uh, the idea that presidents will sign a bill into law, but in the same breath mention, oh, section 14 so-and-so of this bill is a problem. Now, I'm not going to veto the whole thing, and I don't have a line item veto, so I can't just strike out 14 so-and-so. But I'm putting the executive branch on notice, that they're going to interpret Section 14 so-and-so in a particular way so as not to present an unconstitutional infringement of my authorities. In or my, from in, my perspective. Exactly. Or in rare cases, even saying, I will not enforce right. such and such a de facto line out of veto. All right. So so I think it's worth stressing at this point that, yes, the practice has been gone for a while. We saw an uptick during the George W. Bush administration. Um where it wasn't just the number of sign-off statements, but it was the aggressiveness of some of the constitutional claims that were made, including, for example, that Congress didn't have the power to interfere with the president's constitutional authorities, commander-in-chief. Right. So we had, we certainly had in the Bush years the moment that this crystallizes into uh, really throwing the gauntlet down. Yeah. Uh, now, it's interesting because, of course, none of that means there's going to be litigation. Well, this no. is the Constitution outside the courts, right. which is still really, really important. So, so But listen, sign-off statements aren't, aren't, aren't binding in any formal respect, right? They're basically a statement of administration policy. Well, can I qualify that? Yeah. I think they're, they're binding if you work for the president. So if you're in the executive branch and the president says, here's what I think, then you're going to follow that lead. Right. As a matter of employ, right, because you were, as a matter of, that's of your inferiority, boss. not, be, not exactly. as a matter of law. Exactly. That's all I was trying to say. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so the, listen, and, and, and lest anyone think I'm about to be, you know, that guy, Obama did it too. I mean, right there, Obama <laughs> had signing statements. Um, I will say not as many um, and not as often, but whatever. Um, the, the, what's interesting about the, so, so there's, a, there's a long signing statement accompanying the NDAA, and there are, Bobby, dozens of constitutional objections to different provisions. Um, you yeah, think- we, we should provide a, a, a baseline. What's the end we're comparing that to? The NDAA, the National oh, yeah. Defense Authorization Thousands Act, of pages. It is... It is Vast. That's right. And but, so the, the the numbers here, I think we should focus on the quality more so, than so that's the right, So that's where I'm going next, right? Um, some of the objections are, I think, objections that have been made by each of the president's immediate successors. So, for example, the transfer restrictions for Guantanamo detainees. Um, Isn't that the most interesting part of this? Because he issues an Obama-style yeah, objection. Yeah, but Bush did the same. I mean, well, I guess there wasn't, there weren't transfer provisions right. when Bush was president. Let's drill down on that one, and then let's come back to the other ones, because that one kind of plays against type. A little. Um, don't you think? I mean, look, it, obviously— Part of what goes on here is it's not that the presidents personally sit there with he all doesn't? these constitutional views, especially wait, this one, right? Wait, you know what the President exactly. Trump went through the NDAA page by page? Part of what goes on with the lawyers who work in the White House Counsel's office is, the, the as we've heard a lot about with Don McGahn lately, right? Oh, the gosh. long-term protection of the interest of the office of the presidency, in, which, just, you know, shock of all shocks, whether it's Obama or Trump or Bush, um, tend to be concerned with preserving prerogative of executive branch positions, whatever they may be. And and so Obama, it played with type for him to object to detainee transfer constraints that would be in each year's NDAA. Uh, 
Trump, you would almost expect to just omit that, but shown you the power of the institutional coherence over time. Even Trump's statement, though saying like, hey, Guantanamo is great. I don't mean, I'm not planning to close it. Guantanamo. Nonetheless, nonetheless, even Donald Trump, formally speaking, the office that he occupies here objects on constitutional grounds to these continued constraints on the presidency. That's, That's powerful. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But it doesn't impress you much. No. All right. Shania. What does? Um, So (laughs) We've had our first Shania Twain reference. That don't impress me much? No. Um, That don't impress me much. (laughs) So so what I found striking about about the the constitutional reservations were the number of them, and Bobby, I didn't count, but many of them are directed toward two kinds of provisions, of which there were many in the NDAA. One was sort of threatened funding cutoffs. Um, if certain things weren't done, if the president didn't take certain actions. And Bobby, the other were a bunch of disclosure requirements, right? That Congress was ordering reports to Congress. Congress was ordering, you know, the publication of certain things. And what strikes me about both of those is those are areas where I think Congress has a clearer claim to constitutional authority than some of the areas where we've seen these kinds of constitutional objections in the past, right? The, the transfer question, I think, is actually messy, on the pure separation of powers uh, metric, um, no one would dispute that Congress has the power of the purse, right? Congress is under yeah, no affirmative obligation I, to fund anything. So I'm half with you. I'm, I'm completely with you on the funding thing right. where Congress, that, you know, so to take John Yu as a prominent mm-hmm. example of someone who has an extremely robust vision of executive branch Article Two power. But John's answer when people say your vision, you know, makes him unaccountable, John's answer, aside from the possibility of impeachment, is to say, look, the power of the purse is available to Congress. It can cut funding off when it wants to. So insofar as the president was arguing that some of the threatened funding cutoffs were that he would construe them to not interfere with various constitutional authorities, my response is, dude, um, I think that's just wrong. Like, I think Congress can cut off funding at any time and for almost any reason. Um, On the disclosure stuff, I mean, I think... Yes, there's a closer call, Bobby, as to sort of how the relevant constitutional dynamics work out. But most of the the provisions, most of what Congress was asking for were sort of classified or at least confidential reports to the relevant congressional committees. Um, That's just a classic exercise of Congress's oversight function under McGrain versus Doherty. You know, I'm surprised to see such robust claims that that the president's going to understand these requests, well, these mandates, Bobby, um, as not requiring the executive branch to do anything new, as not requiring it to provide any new information, as simply um, requiring the, pre- the government to turn over the, the reports that it's already generated. You know, in the end, I suspect what will happen is they'll, they'll comply. And they'll they'll have preserved the theoretical objection, but the theoretical but objection, but, the, but and and so insofar as signing statements are mostly interesting because of the potential litigation that they are previewing, this theoretical objection bothers me. Okay, all right. So keep an eye out for further signing statements from the Trump all right. administration. So as for non-theoretical things that really bother me, should we talk about security clearances? Oh my gosh, we have a major a major event in Trumplandia. We've got the John Brennan security clearance revocation. Which, by the way, I thought, so So, did I misunderstand our prior discussion of this where you said it would never happen? You just said Gina Haspel wouldn't sign off on it. Oh, I said Gina Haspel would never sign off right, of it. So I, the, went to the, I went really strong so on the that. President, so the president has overridden, or so, so presumably. Yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. No, I think this is what yeah, we predicted, yeah. that if this were to happen, it would be a direct uh, presidential action. Never mind, the CIA, no never mind the CIA director. Of, absolutely not. This has this has no CIA backing uh, in it, obviously. Okay. Uh, in fact, I think it's pretty obvious that this was like titanically unwelcome. So listen, I, I want to say a couple things that I think are, are going to make me no friends, right? I actually have some qualms about the practice of allowing certain senior officials to keep their clearances after they leave government. Um, not major qualms, not qualms keep me up at night, but I at least think it's a, in, in a blue sky world, it's something we would at least think more carefully about and whether there are sufficiently compelling reasons to do it, to allow it to happen. Wouldn't we normally think there are plenty of reasons for, to use Brennan yeah. as the particular example, that there would be endless instances where Gina Haspel or whoever the incumbent uh, director is, needs to compare notes about, okay, you know, we have this operation yeah, yeah. that started under your watch. I need to talk to you about what's going on with it now. Maybe. I would think that would come up all the time. So maybe, but then I think the question is whether it should be, whether, whether you want to sort of think more carefully about who should, whether, whether you want to think more specifically about the terms of those sort of post-employment clearances um, and whether they should look any different. I mean, part of this is me building up to why I think Congress needs to take more of an active role in this whole space. Okay. Um, my point, though, is whatever you think of 
whether former officials should have a security clearance. The one thing I hope we can all agree on is that the ground for revoking them should not be because you don't like them and yep. because they have publicly criticized you. So this will be one where you and I are in you know, complete agreement. And I think most people are in complete agreement, but not everybody. Not I've everybody. certainly seen people say, look, at the end of the day, yeah. It's the president's prerogative. You can do what he wants. Well, so the line that's been drawn here, it's the question of, of law versus policy, right? And the question is, is the president's control over security clearances uh, – absolute in the same sense that, say, the pardon power is or the idea that he is the commander-in-chief. Is it indefeasible? Right. Is it it all qualified in the sense that at least it can't – well, question one, do, do constitutional – uh, considerations such as free speech or procedural due process where you have a Attached. protected interest, do those things go into the balance against it or can they not counterbalance it? I think it has to be the case that they matter. And so let's imagine a similar core presidential prerogative, commander-in-chief. No one, I think it's clear that if nothing else, you can't make someone else the commander-in-chief. As Congress tried in 1867. Exactly. This has been attempted. It clearly can't be done. Um, But therefore, does it mean that the president, in the exercise of his commander-in-chief power, can order just the outright murder of someone? Of course not. No. There there are a million reasons why not. Um, Why should it be the case that even if we accept that the president, as as a combination of commander-in-chief, sole organ in foreign affairs, the oath clause, the vesting clause, go on and on and on, the whole array of Article II type ideas that do empower the president in the first instance to be the sole classification authority ultimately. Um, Why in the world should we say that he could therefore be free to exercise it in ways that might be Oh, I don't know. Racially biased? That might be politically biased? That you know, that might be any number of otherwise n- normally seen as constitutional violations. Uh, I agree with all of that. Um, I think there's one more thing I would add, which is you are assuming a point that I would dispute, which is that the power to control national security classification is just like the pardon power and like the commander in chief clause. Um, I think Congress has. Unfortunately, and I've been saying this for years, I mean, long before Trump came along, well, or at least before he became president, um, I think Congress has unfortunately ceded um, authority it used to exert to play a role, not, yeah. not, not the dominant role, but a role in national security classification. Um, the Atomic Energy Act of 1954 includes a statutory classification regime, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I think part of the problem here is that there is all kinds of, Bobby, inherent presidential power in this space, not because the president has indefeasible preclusive power, but because the president has claimed this authority since Truman and Congress has not pushed back. So this is a, a great anticipation of steel seizures, right? Indeed. Because what, what Steve and I are talking about is the distinction between, and these, these ideas get conflated all the time and it drives me crazy. The, the question at step one is, if Congress hasn't given the president the power to do something, does the president have inherent Article II authority to do it anyways? And I think that in the absence of congressional action, it would still be within the power of the presidency to control statutory, I mean, to control security clearances. And, and that would be a great claim of inherent authority that flows easily from a lot of his otherwise established powers. Then step two, you ask, aha, but what if Congress does act and set certain procedural or substantive rules about how that area is to unfold? And in that case, you get into the steel seizures type question of if the president wants to go one way and Congress has clearly gone the other way, who wins? Right. And you're saying that you think that there's at least some space for Congress to control at least some things. I think it's got to be right at the margins, at least. There's got to be at least some degree of potential statutory control. Including, sorry, yeah. just, to, just yeah. to, including creating a process, right? Including creating a administrative appeals process and potentially a cause of action. Yeah. Because here's the thing. Even if you believe the president has, let's say, Bobby, preclusive authority in this space, that doesn't mean that the Constitution doesn't apply to what he does, right? So presumably, Congress would still have the ability to create a right to litigate a due process right. claim if you think the president um, arbitrarily revoked your clearance, um, a discrimination claim if you think the president revoked your clearance because of unconstitutional animus against you based on your race, national origin, sex, etc. Um, and in the First Amendment context, political retaliation. Right. So the, this is starting to sound bad for Brennan's potential case, which he's he's flirted with the idea. You know, Brennan probably isn't going to sue. He might. Bruce Orr, if his uh, if his gets taken, then I think he probably should sue. Because um, Orr's a current government employee, right? So Orr has a stronger claim to a current and ongoing yeah, property his job, interest. He can't do his job without this. Right. 
Brennan doesn't need this. Right. And, and notwithstanding the president trying to make it sound like Brennan's out there cashing in by having a clearance, please. Uh, he's, he, I'm sure he's cashing in. It does not depend on whether he's got a clearance. No. But back to, the, back to the way this is setting up. So let's say I'm willing to agree with you that there's space here for Congress to act and it might even be good if they did, but they haven't. Right. So some are saying, and there's some case law behind this, that look, until Congress gets in the game under Department of Navy v. Egan, yep. and then this really interesting Fourth Circuit case uh, from 2013, uh, Hegab versus Long, yep. um, that absent congressional intervention, the, f- the field is ceded to the president to do what he would do. So I think I'm actually a little more optimistic about the prospects for successful constitutional claims. And I think that actually Hegab v. Long leaves space for this. So I think it depends on how those claims are styled. Um, not for damages, because we don't like Bivens. Right. right, so right. It, ha- so right. it would have to be some kind of suit for like injunctive and declaratory relief to That's get right. your like, clearance back. Give me back. my clearance back. Right, and in that context, you know, I despite the president's threat that you know I'll discover all the bad stuff you did, Brennan. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to see that lawsuit. Well, okay, so just to flesh it out a little bit further, so key point number one: not a damages action. No. Um, and that's fine because it really is about like, no, just give me my clearance back. Or revoke um, it correctly, now, like DACA. Right. It, I would go further and say that um, I think a lot of listeners would hear this and say like, look, uh, that sounds great as a matter of policy, but the, but the reality is that's opened up this huge can of worms. There are going to be speculative marginal cases, and in the this just should be political question stuff, right? Um, it's too messy for courts to try to tease out. Was this really on the merits or was this really political punishment? You know, I'm willing to say, actually, that, that that's right. In, in the average sort of borderline case, the courts should defer. They shouldn't dig in. But I think there's a limit to that logic. And I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a – it's not a perfect example, as Chairman Burr has, has sort of underscored. Brendan has done and said a few things that make his case less clean than it otherwise would have been. Uh, but – it's pretty obvious that this was political punishment. This was punishment of a critic. It was in no way an actual security-based determination. And I think in an extreme enough fact pattern, there has to be a judicial role to protect the First Amendment and yep. procedural due process interests, but especially the First Amendment interests. Because it's not that, uh, you know, as Brad Moss said on the Lawfare podcast, uh, I guess yesterday, the day before, you know, Brennan's not going to be chilled from speaking. That's true. It's the chilling effect on others. It's everybody else. It's not Everybody else. It's it's all the line employees. It's everyone who has a security clearance who's nobody. Right. Nobody in the grand scheme of the public. uh, And who maybe one day want to have a clearance. All of whom look at this and think, maybe I shouldn't put that post out there, that op-ed out there. I shouldn't say that thing publicly critical Uh, of the president. Forget publicly. I shouldn't whistleblow. Like, I shouldn't shouldn't report this fraud, waste, or abuse to my inspector general because if the president finds out about it, I'm toast. At least there, at least with whistleblowing, you actually have statutory protections. There is a statutory vehicle you can turn to. It's the people who aren't whistleblowing who just want to criticize. They just want to exercise First Amendment rights. but But the retaliation protections for whistleblowers are not absolute. Um, not true, but I'm just saying that the, 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 the main, if we're trying to find where's the strongest argument, it's people who are not whistleblowing, who are just Listen, the, the, core the, political the speech. The suppression of dissent is, I think, one of the single scariest things happening in this administration. And this is not just about security clearances. It's about the non-disclosure agreements. I yes. mean, this runs across any number of topics. And it is, I think, the most, dis- you know, policies aside, we're going to disagree about policies, personality, disagree about personality. We're going to disagree about, you know, whatever. The notion that this administration is making it acceptable publicly to support or at least not roundly criticize efforts to suppress noble, principled, patriotic dissent is a horrifying development in American political discourse. Concur. Um, All right. Now, let me just say one last thing about this. I am not – I will say I am one of those who doesn't love the specter of national security officials being the first line of defense. Um, But they have to be because Congress is silent. Well, I so yeah, so I feel differently about that. I think I think there's there is a reason to be concerned about it. You know, in the military context, we talk about civil military relations. We don't want the uh, we don't want the officer corps politicized and participate in public life much. But when I see Chancellor McRaven now back yeah. to being uh, retired, Admiral McRaven and, and our teaching colleague here at UT with his uh, immensely powerful statement, um, at a certain remove, you don't want military officers retired or otherwise participating in ordinary political life. But at a certain remove, the people best positioned to speak credibly about what the national security implications are of, of certain things that Trump might be doing, I think it has to be them. No one else can say it credibly well, or as credibly. I think the intelligence committees could if they cared, right? Uh, 
Yeah, they, they, they have a role to play. Um, the credibility that, that members of Congress have in making claims about national security, I think, pales in comparison to what a McRaven can do. Do you think McRaven has more of an effect on Trump supporters than, say, the House Intelligence Committee would if it criticized Trump for the security clearance stuff? Well, that's sort of like saying, well, the best, well, why, do, why don't we ask for Jared Kushner to criticize there we go. him? Because that would be the most effective thing. There you go. Well, you, know, you can't let the best be the enemy of the good here. Jack, Jared, who, by the way, I have no idea how he even has And actually, I, and, and frankly, I can't think of anything more effective than what Admiral McRaven right, well, fair. So speaking of teaching, um, we promised some, some 1L-based frivolity to yes. end our, our sessions week. All right, so if you're not interested in life in law schools and you came here for the national security stuff, thanks for being with us this week. We'll see you soon. All right, so I have, I have five basic tips, right? Ooh, five right. basic pieces of advice. For Top, five. Top five? Top um, five. Number one, don't forget what got you here, right? So if you have – don't – don't completely change. Keep your... studying logic games on the L set. No, but like don't, don't you know? Don't forget that like you you have a, a network of friends and family who you rely upon for emotional support. Don't forget that like you have study habits that you've developed over you know no less than seventeen years of schooling right oh, prior oh, to law school. Hopefully, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right? Like like don't don't think that like you have to reinvent every single wheel just because law school is different, right? So yeah. have trust your instincts at least to some degree. Step number one. Um, advice number two. Use your professors, um, right? One of the things I love about the law school model is that as opposed to, say, like major research universities, um, we're supposed to, and many of us, take seriously our commitment to keeping our doors open, to talking to our students, not just about what we're doing in class, but about, you know, employment possibilities, about extracurricular possibilities, about writing, about service, about all kinds of stuff. You know, the, the only thing you can do wrong as a 1L is not – Take advantage of the opportunity to agree with that. That's so true. So few one L's are better than upper level students about coming to office hours, but they're still not all not good as good as they should be, right? Like, and they think that they can only ask about something that was like from today's class. When in fact, what you what you should do is ask if there's a time where you can come by and say, "Listen, I'm I'm not sure what the pathways are to get to what I want to do. Do you have any insight?" Totally. You know, one time out of three, that's going to be a home run for you. Yep. And, and you know, I, I have so many 1Ls who come to me late in the semester and after like an hour in office hours say, man, I wish I had come sooner. Yeah. yeah. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Right? Like come, you know, start coming to office hours for all your professors whenever you have time. Yeah. yeah you'll find out very quickly is, is do you happen to have a particular professor who's not actually that into yeah. the, that communication? You'll know. But chances are good you'll find that actually there's a wealth of information on display. Because most law schools are careful and, and intentional about who they put in the first semester teaching one else. We certainly are. And so, you know, you should you should trust that the law school has placed before you the kind of professors with whom you're going to want to build relationships. Um, number three, be very careful about doing things because, quote, they, unquote, tell you to. Um, <laughs> oh, them. They're the worst. They are the worst. I tell my students, if you tell me that you want to do something or you, or you think you should do something because, quote, they say you should do it, I say, if you can't tell me who they are, the answer is no, <laughs> um, right? This is sort of, it's not quite peer pressure. It's that like there's this, law schools develop all kinds of conventional wisdom that isn't necessarily conventional or wise, right? Have your own reasons for why you want to pursue yeah. different classes, different opportunities, different jobs, et cetera. Yep. Um, all right, number four, um, mental health, right? I mean this very deeply. Um, it is not true that every single minute you spend studying is of equal value, um, right? That there is a point of diminishing returns. It is going to do you no favors if by the time you get to finals, you're completely exhausted, you're down in the dumps, you know, you haven't been to a movie or gone out to a dinner in weeks, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think the value added from taking care of yourself, whether that means going to the gym, whether that means, you know, um, playing video games for an hour a day, whatever it is, right? Don't Everything in moderation, but don't cut that out just because you feel like you have to spend every waking moment studying. I think that's right. Uh, sleeping right, eating right, exercising right. If you, if you have a faith life, maintaining that, staying in touch with family and friends, all that stuff's super important. And it sounds like, well, you can't possibly do it. If you do that, you'll be so much more efficient and productive in your work time. You got to treat it like a job because it is. Exactly so. Uh, and then last and perhaps most importantly, and I think this is the part that people miss, um, keep in mind that... Unlike college, unlike, you know, say high school, these are folks with whom you're going to be spending much of your professional lives. Um, and so relationships matter, right? Think seriously about how you want to, um, you know, 
create relationships, build relationships. Um, think seriously about you know where you want, where you see yourself, and how you want to get there. Right? That you know, don't sort of look back when you're a three L or after law school and say, man, I wish I had spent more time talking to my classmates. Because realistically, like Bobby, my law school classmates, there are about twenty five or thirty of us who are now law professors. Um, and man, I love the fact that like I can just call any one of them up at any time and say, hey, what's going on? Because we have those kinds of relationships. Um, you know, and I said this as someone who was not necessarily the best in law school at building those relationships. Keep in mind that like this is a community. Yeah, your law school is a community, but the legal profession in general is a community. And part of what we're doing in law school is not just teaching you how to become a thriving member of that community, but also teaching you how to become a responsible contributing, um, you know, worthy, right, member of that community. And it's a lot more fun along the way when you're on this tough ride. So I'll close. Because law school can be fun. Yeah, it, it absolutely can. And I'll close with just two real quick tips. Um, first of all, I strongly recommend to any uh, any 1L that they get familiar with Larry Solom's legal theory blog uh, because it does two things, one of which really matters for you, one of which not so much. Uh, one thing Larry does at Legal Theory Blog is he flags and gives abstracts of uh, forthcoming scholarship. Th- that's great. You, you 1L students don't need to worry about that too much. But the second thing he does is he has a thing called the Legal Theory Lexicon. It's a series of entries on topics designed for brand new law students and for continuing you know, upper-level students uh, to come become familiar with various concepts. And they run the gamut from things that are truly jurisprudential philosophy to just terms you're going to hear or concepts you're going to hear in law school, um, there are a few things that would be a better use of your your very scarce extra study time than making a habit of bit by bit familiarizing yourself with everything that's on his lexicon. I think it's a powerful toolkit you can make use of. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is uh, it is important to the lawyerly mind to be able to fully understand arguments you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And I think Steve and I try to put this on display a lot. On no, the we show. don't. Yes, you do. And uh, we try to show that um, disagreement on the merits has nothing to do with how you feel about the other person. Don't ever get that confused. And and you need to, if you want to have the best arguments to favor your own views, you sure better understand in full and fair detail the views of the other side. The last thing you ever want to do is silence someone else. So that's something that I think often needs to be said, maybe these days more often than the past, unfortunately. And uh, with that, I guess we'll turn people loose to go off to get ready for their first day of class. Good luck. Godspeed. Um, you know, if you have, if, if, if listening to us is part of your mental health uh, uh, routine. Awesome. We love it. Uh, Bobby's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, next week, we will have our, our Locky deep dive. Uh, the week of Labor Day, we will have our Youngstown deep dive. And we'll be back to figure out what the heck happened while I was on vacation. Uh, probably, Bobby, around Thursday the 13th. Sounds good. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.